Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, we turn to the Book of Romans, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, Burden for the Lost. If you'd like to follow along, please turn to Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Romans chapter 9. TJ, thanks for introducing that new one. That was great. Romans chapter 9. Now we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 29, though obviously we we will not be able to study all of that. Um, I've got 1 through 29 as kind of the first unit in this section. So remember the next three chapters are all a section. Verses 1 through 29 kind of form that first unit in it. Uh, Verses 30 to 33, the part I've left out for now, is a transition that takes us from the primary truth of chapter 9 into the primary truth of chapter 10. So we'll get there. But 1 through 29, kind of this first unit, I've got it broken into four parts. Part of what I want to do today is show you how the whole chapter fits together. That way we'll see how the first five verses, which is primarily what we're considering this morning, introduces what's coming. So I'm going to tell you what we're going to read so that you can kind of see it. Then we'll read the whole passage and I might even do it again. That helps us repetition. In the first five verses, we're going to see an introduction. We're going to see Paul's grief over his fellow countrymen, the Israelites, he, he grieves, he has anguish over the fact that they have, as a whole, you know, at, at, at the masses have rejected Christ. That, that doesn't mean that every single Israelite had. Paul himself was an Israelite who had turned to Christ, but the majority had rejected Christ. So he expresses his grief that they have done this. Then in verses 6 through 13, Uh, you're going to see him um, begin to teach the truth of who true Israel is. True Israel are the children of the promise, the children of faith, not the children of the bloodline, the children according to the flesh. It's the people who have trusted in Christ. That's the true Israel. And then you'll notice starting in verse 14 and going all the way down through verse 24 that we'll see that he gives a discussion on God's sovereignty in choosing who the children of promise are. And then the the last section we'll see there, verse 24 to 29, this this is where kind of the big reveal comes. God's choice of who the children of promise are includes Gentiles who will be saved. And so that then becomes the big reveal of how how does all this work together? God's plan of redemption, how he brought salvation to the world and what it is he's doing. There was misunderstanding and this is how he shows it. So let's start in verse one. Let's read all the way through and then we'll we'll pray. So verse one, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. 
for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son, knowing that it is only by his blood, the redemption purchased by his death and resurrection that we have access to you. We ask that you will come now and teach us, instruct us. We ask, O oh God, that you will give us an abundance of grace. And Lord, as we sang a moment ago, we do not come and ask for these things, claiming any righteousness in us as though we deserve it, as though you ought to give it because we're so good. We come appealing to you according to your mercy according to your character, that you are the God of steadfast love and mercy and grace given in, in the name of your son. And so, Lord, we pray 
Come to us, sons and daughters who have trusted in Christ and give us grace right now. So you, you are going to be exalted. The knowledge of your glory is going to fill the earth. You are going to magnify your name. We are a group of people who want to see your glory, want to magnify you. And from this text, what you've revealed in your word, your truths, glorify your name. We want to see it. We want to be changed by it. And so God, we pray, glorify your name. And so we, 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 we believe surely this request pleases you. So we trust you, oh God, that, that you'll grant it. We ask it, God, feed us from the word. Show us your truths that we understand them. We want to know your great plan of redemption, how you brought salvation into the world, how you saved our souls and how you are at work to build your kingdom on this earth. So give us understanding, God, we pray. Help me, Lord, um, my heart, my mind, my mouth, everything that it's, it's gonna take to be useful. I wanna, I wanna be useful, so, so please bless and help us, God, to worship by receiving your word and in being changed by it. Please bless our little ones in the next room, O oh God, save souls. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. On November 20th, 1839, John Williams and James Harris arrived on the island of uh, Aramunga, an island, a part of a larger group of islands in the South Sea, and they went there for the express purpose, and they were excited and eager to come and make the gospel known on this island that to our knowledge had never encountered the word of God. They came there, they knew there was risk, they knew that there was danger, they counted the cost and they went. But within mere minutes of landing on that island, both Williams and Harris were murdered and eaten by the cannibalistic tribe that inhabited that island. But only three years later, another group of missionaries, actually from the exact same London Missionary Society, who knew all about what had happened. They knew the risk. They knew the danger. They counted the cost. And they also sailed and arrived on that island. They lasted longer than the first. They lasted seven months after seven months, the danger of murder and the threats coming against them were so severe that they did get on a boat and leave. But then again, only 10 years later, we're now at 1852, another missionary, a man by the name of John Inglis, knowing all that had come before, same missionary society, by the way, some bold folks, same missionary society, knowing all that had come, knowing the risk, knowing the danger, counted the cost, were willing to give their lives for the name of Christ. He showed up on the island. This time there was no murder. And within two years, they began to see fruit. Uh, they began to see uh, some of the, the tribesmen denying their former paganism and embracing the message of the gospel. Over the next several decades, more missionaries came uh, to this um, group of islands, including a man by the name of John Patton. So this is another one of those missionary names I throw out there, encouraging you to get familiar with. John Patton was from Scotland. He knew the dangers, knew the risks, counted the cost. He had many people who tried to, tried to stop him from going. 
the most classic line that he was given is someone just, just trying to shake him and tell him not to go. You'll be eaten by cannibals. Still, he went. Within four months of landing on that island, he lost his wife and newborn son to what they called the fever disease that riddled the islands. Over the course of the years, he had numerous attempts to murder him. There were times where it appears it was only supernatural grace that delivered him from some of the plots. There was even one occasion where a great many from the island turned against him and wanted to kill him. They actually laid siege to his house, surrounded him with the intention that he would not escape. And there was a violent storm that hit. And in the wind and the rain, he found a way to slip past those who wanted to murder him. He, he escaped from the island only to return a short time later and give the rest of his life, making the name of Christ known. Now that account that I've told you, I've told you dozens, I'll not try not to exaggerate too badly, dozens and dozens of other accounts just like it. In fact, every once in a while, I wonder if maybe you're like, man, get some other illustrations. <laughs> I love to tell you these kinds of accounts and you think about it from the perspective of an outsider, Christians are a strange lot. There's not enough time throughout the day if I, were to re if I were to recount from history every occasion of believers doing exactly these kinds of things, going to dangerous places, choosing hardship for the sake of preaching the gospel. So why do they do it? Why is it our beloved Hickey family with good land, good house, good job, a comfortable life, a church that they liked? Why leave that to go somewhere harder? Why, why leave that to go do difficult things where there is risk and all this adapting to a new kind of life? What drives believers to these kinds of endeavors? Well, we talk a lot about the answers to those things. The, 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 the answer is a long one. There's a lot involved, but to simplify it down to its smallest parts, it is love for God and love for souls. In this love for God, this love for souls, the love of the gospel, the love of the kingdom of God, the love of Jesus's bride, the church, and wanting to serve him supersedes love for self and supersedes desires for comfort and even for his personal safety. And by the way, guys, contrary to what many want to think, these are unnatural affections. That's an unnatural affection. There's, there's a reason why it is, it is a strange thing when Christians go to these places and do this kind of thing with all of the risk. This is an affection that is created in the new birth and then that grows in us as we grow in Christ. And in our passage, we see Paul demonstrate this love. Love for God and love for souls we get an insight into Paul's heart, into Paul's thinking in this passage. The burden that he felt in his soul, desiring for souls to be saved. That ache, that even weeping that he would have as he prayed for those around him, his, his fellow countrymen, to be saved. 
And God means this to be instructive to us. God gives us heroes like this. Paul wasn't perfect, but Paul was godly. God gives us heroes like this so that whenever we get little insights, um, whenever little phrases are given, even things like when Paul said, I serve God in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son. Little moments like that are meant to be instructive to us that we would see in that a godly example for us to imitate. And so this is primarily what I want us to meditate on this morning. In this introduction, we see some of Paul's heart revealed, his anguish for souls, his missionary affection, that evangelistic zeal, that longing for souls to be saved, and then what it led him to do. Um, Let me talk for just a bit here about how this fits into the, the whole chapter. So I told you what was coming and then we read it. Let me just kind of remind you what it was there as you sort of look over it once again. In verses one through five, we've got the first point. And this is an introduction where we see Paul's grief over how his fellow countrymen, Israel, had rejected salvation. But then starting in verse six and going down to verse, uh, verse 13, we have the second point here. He begins to explain that, listen guys, it's not like God's promises have failed here. It's not like God's word has failed here. And he begins to give an explanation of who true Israel is. True Israel is the remnant. True Israel is not the physical Israel. It is the spiritual Israel, the children of the promise. And so there's an explanation there. And then coming to verse 14 down through 24, we have this section that, you know, usually Romans 9 is known for, but it's not the main point. It is, he discusses God's sovereignty in choosing who the children of promise are. In God's sovereignty, he has predestined who will be saved. So there's discussion on that. And then 24 to 29, here's the big reveal. In God's sovereignty of choosing the children of promise, he has included the Gentiles, included the nations. The gospel is not only going to one people group, the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. And God is building his kingdom from saving souls from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So that's how the chapter fits together then the end of the chapter gives us a transition into chapter 10. So we're going to consider point number one this morning. In point one, uh, there would be three sub points that I see. We're going to look at the first two this week, and then the last one will help us as we transition into point number two next week. So that'll be coming. So I'll show you kind of what's happening as we come. So here is point number one, Paul's grief over Israel's rejection of salvation. Um, Look back to verse one there. Let's let's read a little portion of this again to uh, get it familiar. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Uh, After reading that, now jump directly over to chapter 10, verse one for a second, please. Look what he says there. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, who's the them? Same people group, the, the, the Israelites there. Prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Jump to chapter 11, look at verse 13. 
He switches subjects there a little bit. So he's got some times that he was uh, speaking to the Jews and some to the Gentiles. There would be many who would read this letter. But he says, but I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, we'll get to that. Paul's primary audience that God used him to reach was actually Gentiles, other nations. So inasmuch then as I'm an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. So you can see that this issue of Paul's desire and longing for his, uh, his fellow countrymen to come to faith in Christ, his praying for this, it's a regular theme throughout these chapters. These three chapters, the big subject is God is revealing this uh, another part of the plan of redemption. How did God bring salvation into the world? He did it through using one nation. He did it through using a, a people that he created and we need to understand that. We need to understand how they fit into this big plan. And then when we try to understand, you know, in God's big plan of redemption, of what he's bringing about in the course of history, where is all of this moving? We have to understand how the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people groups of the earth, how we fit into all of that. So Israel and Gentiles, how does it all work? Remember, there were a great deal of misunderstandings about how all this fit together. There are still a lot of misunderstandings about how, how all of this fits together. And that included Christians. Christians in the early church had some really bad misunderstandings about all these things. You know, you don't become a Christian and five minutes later understand everything. <laughs> There's this long process. And so what happens in this section is that Paul is correcting a lot of the errors that existed. And, and, you know, just to be quite frank, there are some pretty complicated parts of these next three chapters and in what we're shown there. I believe by the time we're done, we'll simplify and that almost all of our, our big questions will be answered when we see this. But what happens here in these first five verses is... Paul is about to say some things over the course of these next three chapters and, and especially in point two, verses six to 13, he's about to say some things that could really be misunderstood. And so he's going to make some things clear throughout the course of these next few chapters. And especially in six through 13, Paul is going to address the fact that his countrymen, the Israelites, they have rejected God. They have rejected Christ, the son of God. You reject the son of God and the salvation that God has offered. You reject God himself. He's going to bring up the fact that his fellow countrymen, those who have rejected Christ are under the curse of God. They are under God's wrath. He, he is working to call them to repentance. And so here's the thing about that. Many misunderstood Paul's intention. Throughout history, listen, listen, guys, this is the sad thing that has happened throughout church history. There have been many who came to wrong conclusions when they read the Bible and developed um, animosity towards the Jewish people. That, that, that is a sad reality. OK, so many throughout history have read the Old Testament, for instance. And when you read the Old Testament, you follow the storyline of Israel, this nation that God created, and you see them fall to sin. You see them rebel against God. And then like Pharisees, they looked at that group and said, those idiots, that's the wrong conclusion. That's the wrong conclusion. Because part of the whole point is 
God put human nature on display, all of our human nature on display. And then when it came to the things that Paul would say, Paul was misunderstood in his day. Do you remember whenever Paul was arrested at the temple in Acts 21? He, there was a group of Jews who came up and grabbed hold of him. And, and do you remember what they, what they yelled out? They grab hold of Paul. They begin to get him on the ground and beat him. And they holler out, men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who everywhere preaches against our people, the law, and this place. Speaking of the temple. Now, all of that was untrue. All of that was untrue. Paul didn't preach against the law of God. Paul didn't preach against the temple, but he did preach that in the new covenant, the law and the temple have been fulfilled and there are changes on the way. And the people misunderstood him as though he were preaching against the scriptures. And then Paul never preached against Israel. It was never with hatred. It was never with disgust. But what he did do is he told them that they were in sin. He told them that they had rebelled against God by rejecting the Messiah that had been sent. And so you are under the curse of God. And they interpreted that as Paul hates us. And so understand what's happening here. Paul in these first five verses is making some things crystal clear because he's about to say some hard things about his fellow countrymen. And so he is making it clear so that he would not be misunderstood that it is not out of hatred. It's just like you and I, friends, when we, when we tell our, our beloved family members that they are under the wrath of God and they need to repent and turn to Christ to be saved. Sometimes we, we, are, we are treated and we are told that, that we're speaking in hatred, we're, we're speaking with uh, animosity and disgust when it's actually the opposite. It is out of love and concern that we want them to be saved. But Paul was misunderstood and they accused him of hating his own people. And so in these first five verses, we see him clear some things up. And in the course of it, we see in his heart some godly affections that the Lord wants us to imitate as well. So here, here's the first part. Think through the words. Um, when, we, when we think through what it is he says in the first five verses, I think there are three things. So here, here's the first. We notice his just expression of grief over their rejection of salvation. So he begins, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. He's about to say something pretty bold here in just a second. Paul is about to say something so bold and so serious that if you and I take it, take it seriously, it would be awfully hard for my heart to truly, with genuineness, repeat what Paul says. He's going to say something pretty hard. And so before he says it, it's kind of like he's grabbing our attention, almost like grabbing us by the collar and saying, look here, guys, I want you to hear me very carefully. I ain't just blabbing at the mouth here. I ain't just saying empty words. I'm not just speaking fluff that sounds nice. I'm gravely serious. Listen, people say stuff all the time. They just don't mean it's part of human nature. Um, it, it's one of the ways that like the world uses it to make, you know, everybody seem like nice people. People say these, you know, really heartfelt expressions all the time, but really deep down in the bottom of their heart, they don't actually mean it. It's just the kind of things that sound nice. Okay. The first five minutes of every political speech from history. Okay. 
The first five minutes when I'm listening with my wife, I'm just like, this is just white noise. This is just static. These words mean nothing, okay? They're just pandering, just blowing smoke as they're talking about the great nation and all this kind of stuff. They don't mean a word of it. It's just the kind of things that sound nice. People do this all the time. Paul is making sure that we not think that about what he's about to say because he's about to say something big. And so he begins, I'm telling the truth in Christ. He is invoking the name of Christ, you know, partly so as to add seriousness to what he is saying. He is saying this, uh, I am speaking this under the authority of Christ. Christ knows that I am not lying. I am saying it in his name, under his will, in tune with his desire. I'm not lying. He's adding emphasis to what he says. And then you notice my conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. So, my conscience is not afflicted in what I'm saying. So he's saying, if I were lying, my conscience would make me feel guilty about this. If I were just spouting out empty words, my conscience is clean in what I'm about to say. And that testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. He is saying that his conscience, his will, and his thinking are in tune with the Holy Spirit. Okay. Paul himself is the one that God used to say the words, walk by the spirit, not by the flesh, live by the spirit and not by the flesh. And so Paul is saying, my, my heart, my thinking, my will, it is in tune with the Holy Spirit. And if I were lying, the spirit would afflict me with some guilt and some conviction. I'm not lying. He is confirming what I say. Now, that's a lot of preview. <laughs> that's a lot of buildup before you say something. So why all the buildup? It, it's because what he's about to say here, guys, is big. So here's the next thing he says. This is the second part. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. So, so first of all, see, these are not empty words. This isn't the biggest thing that he says, but it is important that we know Paul is being sincere. Paul is being genuine. Paul had actual grief and weeping when he considered and he prayed for his fellow countrymen who were unsaved, those lost. I have great sorrow, unceasing grief in my heart. But then in verse three, it's what he says next that is so bold, so considerate. For I could wish that I myself were accursed. The Greek word there is anathema. It is that word used in Galatians that we've referred to. It is to be condemned. It is to be damned to hell. I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I don't know about you guys. I would have an awfully hard time saying that with utter sincerity and truth. I would be willing to go to hell if it meant these people would be saved. I, I, I don't know that my heart is in a place that I, I'm able to say that in sincerity. I would go to hell. I would give up my salvation. I would give up eternal life if it meant that these people could be saved. You know, people say things all the time that they don't really mean. If someone has cancer, a person might rattle off without thinking, oh, bless their heart, I'd take their place if I could. 
Well, maybe some would mean it. I, I'm not saying that no one could. It reminds us of Romans 5, doesn't it? One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in the while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But what Paul says here is, I'm not exaggerating. I would be willing to go to hell. I would be willing to give my soul in exchange for theirs if I could, if it meant that my fellow countrymen would be saved. You know, the more you grow in the knowledge of the scriptures, the more we come to have clarity in everything, the more you grow in the knowledge of God, the knowledge of yourself, the knowledge of the world. And here are two things that just continue to grow as you grow in the knowledge of the word. You will grow in your comprehension of the awful terrors of hell and the beautiful glories of heaven. Paul understood those things better than you or I. And Paul is saying in honesty, I would be willing to give my soul if it meant that they could be saved. This is the reason why Paul had the build up and saying, I'm not lying. And I'm saying this with a clean conscience. I'm saying this in sincerity. I would be willing to be accursed, separated from Christ. I love my countrymen and I would die if it meant that they would be saved. Now let's, let's pause here because there's some very rich application for us to consider. Let's consider Paul's heart here. It is a God honoring yearning of the heart to have a desire for souls to be saved, for the lost around us. You know, the first and highest reason, the motive that is to trump every other motive in our hearts as to why we do everything that we do, and then especially why we want souls to be saved is because we want the name of God to be magnified. We want the earth to be filled with the knowledge of his glory. We want to personally glorify God. We want him to be pleased with us. And we want everyone. We want everyone to see him as the treasure that he is. We want everyone to give him the obedience that he deserves. God deserves worship. He ought to get it. He is the source of all glory, the great treasure of the cosmos. We want everybody to see that, everybody to bow to him. We want everyone to join with the angels and glorify God. This is the foremost and highest of all motives. It doesn't mean it is the greatest motive in our life, but it means that it should be. But there are secondary motives that ought to drive us as well. It may be a more accurate way to say it is the primary motive, our desire for God to be glorified will produce other motives as well will produce secondary motives. So for instance, 1 John says, so you know, sermon for another day, if you love God, then you will love his children. You will love his people. Love for God produces this other thing, produces this love for people, okay? You serve God by serving his people, a secondary kind of motive. Well, similarly, if we have a yearning for God to be magnified, for God to be glorified, we will long for more souls to come join the congregation of worshipers. 
We will long for more lives to give him the obedience that he deserves. We will long for more souls to enjoy this salvation. If we love God, it will grow love for neighbor and even love for our enemies. And when you have love for your neighbor, love for your enemies, love for your children, and you pray for them, and you want their good, you desire their blessing, the more you grow in the knowledge of the word, the, the more things become clear, like money will burn, trophies in the end will just be forgotten as a joke, accolades of the earth will mean total squat when you stand before God on the day of judgment and he gives the sentence of your eternal fate. When you love your neighbor, love your children and want good for them, there is one conclusion that you will in the end come to. You want them to have eternal life. And you'll, you'll know not only is this the greatest thing that I can ask for them, in the end it's the only thing that matters. In the end, the only thing that matters is that they have salvation. It's that they have eternal life. Now, let me pause for a second. If you're new to studying the Bible and we're throwing around this word salvation and all this kind of talk, let me, let me clarify what, what we mean by this so that we're not using Bible words that you don't mean or you don't know. Unlike what the world says, God in the Bible tells us that it's not just the really, really bad people, you know, from our judgment who are in danger of hell. It's everyone who has ever broken the law of God. So that is every one of us in this room. That's, that's all of us. I, I, I know that if you're, if you're new to this, new to learning about the Bible and such, that you hear from the world all the time and you probably think of yourself as a good person. But understand, we only think that because this is the only world we've ever known. You know, the rats in the sewer don't think it smells bad. It's where they live. We, we look around at a sinful world and we think, oh, I'm a pretty good guy, that kind of thing. Do, do you you got to understand, if you were right now able to, to be beamed up and stand at the gates of heaven and look in, and you were able to see the glory and the holiness of that place. And if God gave you the ability to, to look on a portion of his holiness and not be struck dead, you would see what actual purity, cleanness, righteousness, goodness really is. And then you would do what Isaiah did whenever he was shown a glimpse of that. Isaiah was shown a glimpse of heaven and immediately he fell on his face and asked God to forgive him for his uncleanness. From our perspective, Isaiah was a pretty great guy. If you were to see the cleanness of heaven, you would look at yourself and see the uncleanness and the defilement that you have before God. And what it means is you and I are not fit for that clean place. God is not going to let any sin, any mark, any stain into heaven and then the kingdom of heaven that is to come that will reign on this earth. He's not letting any sin into that place. Okay, look what sin did to this place. Okay, he's not gonna let heaven be ruined by sin. That's a problem for you and I who are sinners, who break the law of God. And you gotta understand that if God had left us in that condition and he would have been completely righteous to do so, 
you and I would be facing an eternity of hell. Hell is the place where we simply receive justice, where we receive what we deserve, the wrath and the punishment of God for sin. We would be going to that place. But the whole point of this big plan of redemption, what the Bible calls the gospel, a way for God to rescue souls from this fate. God sent his son. Jesus died uh, to pay the justice price of sins, rose from the dead. And now God is sending the message to the ends of the earth. That's something else he didn't have to do, by the way. And that helps us understand what's happening in 9, 10, and 11 here. God could have done all of that and only sent the message of that to one people group. But God so loved the world that he has sent the message of salvation to the ends of the earth, every language, every people group, so that souls from all of them can believe on the name of Christ and be saved. God is now offering rescue and deliverance. That's what this word salvation means. It means to be saved from hell. But to have that, you must come to God on the terms that he sets and not what you invent in your own mind or what the world and country songs are always telling you about. You must come to him in the way that he says, turn from your sin and rebellion, place your faith, your faith, trust in Christ. And it is by trusting in Christ in that moment that you first truly believe that you will be saved. And there's nothing that does more to glorify God than for a soul to be saved. We're told that every time a sinner repents and turns to Christ, that the angels in heaven rejoice. The angels in heaven celebrate every single time. So in this, in this morning, it could be that there's somebody hearing this and, and you, in the course of this time, you believe. None of us will know it. The angels do. None of us may know it if you believe, but every single time that it happens, the angels rejoice. You know, the angels see the, all of this for what it really is. Again, you know, you and I look around, we can think of ourselves as pretty good people. And even us Christians who know the Bible, we're worse than we think. Okay. The angels see us for who we truly are. Like we come to a place as like semi kind of cleaned up, we think as a Christian and still the angels are just recoiling at how disgusting this defilement is. They see what a miracle it really is. They see who we would be if God did not grab us and drag him to himself. They know what a miracle it is every time a soul is saved. And every single time a soul turns to Christ, it fuels the ongoing worship of the angels because they marvel. They marvel at the glory of God. They marvel that he is this loving, that he would be this gracious, this merciful, the kindness of God that he gives. Their worship is fueled. The more you and I grow in Christ, the more we do that. But one day when our eyes are opened in greater clarity, we will see what a miracle it all is. And we will worship more thoroughly. But if this causes the angels to rejoice, it should cause us to rejoice. If it causes the angels to see the glory of God, it should cause us to see the glory of God. Listen, the more we grow in Christ, the more we will rejoice when people turn to Christ. And the love of God 
that has been poured out on us is meant to fuel our love for others. The forgiveness we have received is meant to fuel our desire for others to have this forgiveness. Meditation on the gospel, daily thinking on what God has done is meant to clear our thinking so that we realize how great this salvation is and we will want more to have it. We will want the message of the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. Now understand, friends, God in the Bible teaches us to recognize the rightness, the righteousness of the judgment of God. The judgment of God on those who reject him on those who will be cast into hell. There are even passages of the Bible that call us to confess that, that what he does is righteous. There there are even ways that we're, we're supposed to have a sense of satisfaction of justice in the judgment of God. Kim Jong Un will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. And we are supposed to draw from that a sense of the justice of God, the rightness of God in that. But it would be a major misunderstanding if if we only looked at that part, the righteousness of God in it, and we walked around the world like Pharisees with our nose stuck up in the air being like, I'm glad all these people are going to hell because that is not the heart of God. But we also would be wrong if we only talked about the compassion of God. Do you see? Do you see how these two things go together over and over again? Behold the kindness and severity of God. We're told to see both of these things. So we are to understand that there is a rightness, a righteousness of God in his justice, but also that God has a heart of compassion. God desires people to be saved. Jesus, when he was on the earth, would look out on crowds and he would feel in his heart pity. He would have compassion. He would be distressed because the the scripture says, because they were lost like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looked out over the city of Jerusalem of all the bustling people around and he wept. He wept over their lostness. He wept over their fate. He wept over the reality that they were undone without salvation. So understand that in the heart of God, there is both comprehension of righteousness and big compassion. We are to grow the same kind of heart that we see the justice of God, that we're not afraid of it and we don't hate it. It would be wrong to hate the justice of God. But we are also to have big hearts that want souls to be saved. Compassion and pity. Paul demonstrates this for us. Paul demonstrates this heart that longed for souls to be saved. Paul would weep when he prayed for souls. Christian, when's the last time you you wept over a soul as you prayed for them? Are you praying specifically for souls to be saved? Psalm 51 gives us a a helpful formula uh, in this. It's it's amazing. It's, you know, it's Old Testament written a thousand years before Christ came, and, and yet there is a formula given for evangelistic zeal there. Psalm 51 is one of the psalms of repentance that David wrote after he fell away from the Lord. And he gives us, it's it's this very useful tool for when we want to 
come back to the Lord, repent of sin, and, or just even those times that you, you grow lukewarm, you get numb, and you want to return to zeal. He, he gives us a formula here. So he begins by praying, God, forgive me, cleanse me, and restore my relationship to you. So that seems pretty obvious. He's, he's coming back to closeness with God. And then he immediately begins to pray, and he asks this, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. You know how it is on some of those times when you've, you've had a moment of worship, maybe personally or with your church family, and you're just, you're bursting with gratitude. Like there's just that sense of amazement that God has been so kind and so gracious. That's the joy of salvation. That's whenever you're overwhelmed with, with his mercy that's been shown to you. David lost that. When he fell away from God, he lost that sense of awe and gratitude. And so he prays, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Well, then immediately next, he says, sustain me with a willing spirit. You know how there are those times where you're filled with zeal, you know, the joy of your salvation leads to this desire. I want to go serve. I want to go get out there. I want to, I want to go, I want to go to Aramunga and preach the gospel. You get, you get fired up and eager and excited about, you know, missions and these kinds of things and you want to go. And then you know that there are times you don't feel that and it's dry. David lost that when he fell away from the Lord. He lost the joy of his salvation and he lost that desire. So he prays for it. <coughs> Restore to me the joy of my salvation. <coughs> Let it lead to a desire to serve you. And then watch uh, what comes next. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Do you see the pattern there? Give me gratitude and joy in my salvation. It will lead to desire to serve you. When I have desire to serve you, I'll open my mouth when I'm around people who are lost. I'll teach your gospel, your salvation, and sinners will be converted to you. That's a formula, friends. When you're in those places of dryness, without the zeal, without the desire, that, that earnest evangelistic zeal and missions fervency, what do we do? Well, the answer is not pretend that you have it. The answer is Pray. Ask, seek, and knock. And we see us led to this in the scriptures. Now, now, let me see if I can begin to apply this just as practically as possible. Just as practically as possible. Parents, let me address you for a moment. Do you long for the salvation of your children? I know it sounds so incredibly simple that sometimes we're tempted not to say these things. I've learned over the years, we gotta, we gotta say the most simple of things. Parents, pray for your children. Pray for your children and do so daily. Never let there be a single day that goes by that you do not pray for them. And here's one of the things that you'll find that happens. When you pray for your children, you will think about things that you wouldn't otherwise think about. It's, it's one of those things that prayer does. It's another one of those things that prayer accomplishes. I don't believe that's the primary purpose of prayer. I believe the primary purpose of prayer is this is how God created the world. You know, we need grace and he's, he's chosen to work through his people asking for things. I think that's the primary purpose. But there's a lot of secondary things that happen there. And one of them is when you pray for somebody, I think it's part of the genius of praying for your enemies. 
Kind of hard to hate somebody that you pray for for five years straight. And when you pray for your children, when you pray for your children, you, you will find that you think about things that you would not otherwise think of. You'll get to thinking about their souls. You'll get to think about what matters. You'll get to thinking about those things that you would be willing to die if it meant they could have what is most precious and that they could have the blessing of God. You come to that point and you will begin to feel very deeply the only thing that matters is that their soul is safe in Christ. Parents, pray for the salvation of your children. Never let there be a day go by that you do not pray for their uh, salvation and God will use your praying to be some of the answer to your prayers. Like, what can I be doing? What can I be doing that will turn their hearts? Parents, Paul said something pretty bold about how much he desired Israel's salvation. I hope you would say the same thing. I would do anything if it meant that my children would be saved. And if that is the case, then let's do the anything. Does that make sense? If your heart says, I would do anything if it meant they would be saved, God has given you some anythings to do. God has given the instruction to teach his word regularly in your home. Make your home have the kind of environment that you are always talking about the things of the Lord. Live a life of sincere obedience before your children. That is attractive. Hypocrisy is ugly and turns children away from the Lord. Make, make involvement in your church family a priority in your life. Can I say something convicting? Please hear it. Don't tell me you die for your children's salvation if you won't turn the TV off long enough to teach the word of God. Don't tell me you die for their salvation if you won't come to church when it rains. If you say, yeah, I would do anything for them to be saved, then let's do the anythings that he has given us. Do you see how evangelistic zeal fuels and leads to action? Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And it leads to, then I will teach transgressors your ways. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Jesus did just that. He laid down his own life as a substitute. The more you and I come to know Jesus, the more we will be like him. You remember that when Jesus was dying, he prayed for the forgiveness of even those soldiers who were putting him to death. And then you remember that a short time later, Stephen prayed the same thing as he was being stoned to death. Stephen was becoming more and more like Jesus. Stephen was desiring souls to be saved, even the very ones who were hurling stones at his skull. The more you and I grow to be like Christ, the more we will think like him, act like him, feel his heart. Jesus was a man of great compassion. You and I need to grow more and more to have that compassionate evangelistic heart. And friends, when you find that you don't have it, because things like this sometimes come in seasons, the ups and downs and undulations, times where there's great zeal and times where it's going downhill. We need to pray and ask for this restoration of joy and for this zeal. Let us become more like Christ.
Let us always be praying for souls. Let us always be striving to imitate Paul's heart that he has here, all things for the sake of the gospel. For the application to you, Christian, let me end with 1 Corinthians chapter 9 for a moment. You can turn there if you like. I'm going to read a passage. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23. If you were to read the bigger context, there's even more that is said about Paul's labor, desire, and zeal for souls to be saved. But this little section will capture it. 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all men, I've made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being, he's speaking of the Gentiles here, by the way, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all means I may save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. There's a phrase to dominate our lives. All things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. And to you who have not turned to Christ to be saved, you have a soul that will never cease to exist. You have a soul. You will dwell forever somewhere. Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gives, if he gains the whole world, but loses or forfeits his soul? Do not lose your soul chasing the things of the world. Do not deny Christ in order to have whatever you hope to gain by the world. Bow the knee to Christ. Turn to Christ. Place your faith and your trust in Christ. There is nothing in you that is going to gain you eternal life. You are not good enough. You need what Jesus purchased with his blood and you will receive that when you call on the name of the Lord and trust him, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask God that you will, you will help us and you will grow within us a desire for your name to be glorified and a desire for souls to be saved. Father, please help us to have this gospel-centered mission-mindedness this evangelistic fervency that wants more and more to enter your kingdom. I know you got different gifts for all of us and not all of us have that specific gift of evangelism. But Father, I do pray that all of us will participate in our, our role and the gifts that you've given so that we will all aid in the, the labor of the fields, bringing the harvest in. So please bless us, O God. Please give our church a compassion that wants souls to be saved and use us, Lord. And any in the room who have heard these things but not yet trusted in Christ, I pray that today they will. Please bless us as we leave and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord bless you. Thanks for listening and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. 
Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.